0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love, but mostly movies for now. Brought to you by Captain Geek and the Dark Nerd. I'm your captain, Will. And I'm your nerd, Jess. Today, we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's latest film, and uh, I believe his uh, biggest box office opening ever. So uh, we are excited to talk about this movie, and we also have with us today, once again, from Screen Hub Entertainment, Eric Hansen. Welcome, Eric.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Yep, nice to have you again, Eric. We're yeah. gonna have some fun this time. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This this movie is easily my favorite film of the year, so I'm going to be very talkative this this episode.
0: <laughs> excellent, good, excellent. Good, That's good. what we want. So I thought we would just start out and talk just really briefly in a n- totally non-spoilery way about the movie, not for very long, but just to give people who may be listening to this and, you know, considering whether they want to go see it at this point, just to give them a kind of a non-spoilery rundown, just really briefly, like I said, and then we'll just move on to really get into the meat of it and have fun with this uh, discussion. So I'll just start by saying, you know, this is one of those movies that, uh, one of those uncommon movies that the more time that goes on, the more... I've actually been thinking about this movie. Right. What do you have uh, for some uh, non spoilery thoughts, Eric?
1: All right. Well, like most Tarantino movies, this movie has kind of an anthology setup. It's basically several short films, but they're structured together to make a full story. So, basically, what the film does is it compares and contrasts the uh, life of a Hollywood superstar with the life of a Hollywood working stiff. The movie cuts back and forth between Leonardo DiCaprio's character of Rick Dalton as he's struggling to get his career back on track, starring in a television show, and his stuntman, uh, Cliff Booth, as he basically runs you know errands around LA and lives a uh, seemingly mundane life. And it all kind of builds up to the night of the notorious you know uh, Tate murders, which were orchestrated by the Charles Manson family, and that's what that's what ends the film. It's basically you know. Kind of portrayed as the end of the classic Hollywood era, of which Tarantino was a big admirer of films like from the fifties and sixties. So that's basically the film in a nutshell. It's these two men's lives intertwined, and it all builds up to that night.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great little uh, overview. Uh, a little just, synopsis. just what what uh, what non spoilery thoughts do you have uh, about this movie?
2: As far as twinton Twent- uh, as far as Quentin Tarantino movies, they all they're all kind of like their own acquired taste, you know? And this one is, I think even further down that line of an acquired taste, the story of which there is very little, you know, in this movie, it's just, it's just strange how all the character arcs, you know, seem to not really go anywhere. You know what I mean? But, uh, as far as the acting and, you know, the, the storyline keeping you engaged. And there's a couple scenes that really, you know, get you amped up. And there's one scene that's, it's like so suspenseful. And we'll get to that in the uh, spoiler review. Spoiler but, review. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's just uh, so many things I was expecting out of this movie. And I didn't exactly see them the way I thought I would, and it's kind of like you mentioned. Now, be, is how, that
0: because of your expectations in terms of Tarantino movies in particular? Is, is that kind of what you're um, saying?
2: I didn't. I didn't really research this movie at all before I went into it. Um, but you know, there was just the mention of the Sharon Tate murders, and you know, Tarantino said this is going to be in the part of the end part of the '60s, and uh, it's going to revolve kind of around Hollywood during the time of the Tate murder. So I was expecting to see that, and mm-hmm. what I saw was not exactly little, how I expected. A little yeah.
0: unexpected, perhaps.
2: But it's like you said, the more you think about it after seeing it, the more there is to think about. And it's it's really, I, I agree, it's probably one of my favorite movies of the year. Not sure how I yeah. rate it among all the uh, Tarantino movies. Yeah, so I gotta if agree. This is... If mm-hmm. you're a fan of Tarantino, if you're a fan of Tarantino, especially, like, his Jackie Brown. And if you can get into that, you'll probably get into this.
0: Well, look, we can save the meat of, of what I'm about to say for uh, later in the discussion, but I'm going to have to disagree with you about the character arcs not going anywhere, um, <laughs> at, least in, uh, at least in the case of Rick Dalton, at the very least. Um, in any case, I have to agree with you guys that this is... I don't know if it's my favorite movie of the year, but it might be. Uh, I was really really um enthralled by this movie and i i really think that tarantino was able to capture something sublime and just like you know mainline it right into the celluloid uh right you know it's it's hard for me to talk about this movie in a non-spoilery way because uh because there's a lot you know there's it's just hard <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't even wanna like go down that hole and try and explain why, because then that's gonna get into spoilers. <laughs> but I yeah, but so I, I would I would wrap up my comments with this movie by giving it Oh man, I think I gotta give it like a nine or a nine point five out of ten. Uh it this nice. this movie really kind of enchanted me and God, I just loved it. It you know, it did end up being Overall, I mean, there's certainly some parts that are an exception to this. But overall, I found that it was a lot less dark than I might expect from a Tarantino movie. Hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, look at the subject matter. I mean, he's, he's, it's, in a way, it's kind of a celebration of, you know, that end of an era of that golden age of Hollywood.
2: Yeah, it's like you, you mentioned. It's like the end of an era in Hollywood. And Tarantino's such a fan of Hollywood. You know,
0: he yeah. Well, is, he grew up in L.A., and I think yeah. And this, he this said is like his favorite time. He was about like six or seven at the time that this movie takes place in 1969. So he was right. around at that time, and uh, I think you know, I think some of the sort of like nostalgia factor, or just the way in which you know this uh, Hollywood at this time is is portrayed, is you can kind of you can I think you can kind of see that it's that he's kind of capturing it from this uh, this, you know, point of view of his, maybe when he was a, you know, when he was a younger man or maybe how he looks back on those times. Yeah. And that's one of
2: the things, one of the feelings you really get from this movie is you just kind of, cause the, the story builds, it's got a real slow build and you switch back and forth between the characters and you kind of get just that feeling of nostalgia just from watching the movie
1: another one of the really cool things this movie does especially you know for someone like me who's really familiar with the era of Hollywood that this film is trying to capture, there are so many little nods and illusions and Easter eggs that you wouldn't otherwise get. Like, there are scenes when Rick Dalton is acting in TV shows, and we see the scenes of him in those TV shows. And the mm-hmm. thing is, those were real shows that they digitally imposed yeah. him into, to, and it kind of mm-hmm. adds a certain credibility to the events we're witnessing. And then there's other actors that are portrayed in the film, like Bruce Lee, uh, Steve McQueen, both of which. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have always been, you know, have always been huge favorites of mine. Uh, Al Pacino plays a real life Hollywood producer. Yeah. Uh, the scene at the Spy movie ranch, you know the the guy, uh, character played by I believe it was Bruce Dern, who Brad Pitt goes to see at the ranch. You know, he was a real mm-hmm. guy. All of this stuff is real. It's real movies. Even the the show that Rick Dalton spends most of the film acting in was indeed a real show. I'm not sure if the episode that he was playing in was a real episode, but the show itself was real. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you just... so For someone like me, it was like being in a, a kid in a candy store just picking up <laughs> on all of these... Little references and allusions. It's like listening to that song "We Didn't Start the Fire" by Billy Joel. If you didn't <laughs> grow up in that era, you don't understand what just it's one of those. It's gibberish. Yeah, yeah. It's just gibberish. But if you grew up in that era, each and every little statement evokes so many memories, and that's what this film was like for me. It was just triggering all these, you know, memories of that of that era of Hollywood, which I actually watched a lot as a kid, continue to watch.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I love that about it too, and the verisimilitude which he's able to lend to the movie through. All these sort of authentic, you know, references and and different things. So, Eric, what would you uh, what would you rate this movie out of ten? Oh, for me,
1: this is a ten, and I'm gonna go out there. This may very well be my favorite Tarantino film, and trust me, for me, that is saying Boom. that is saying yeah. that is saying a ton. Because when I first saw Pulp Fiction in college, I was blown through the back wall of my living room by how yeah. good it was. And yeah. since then, I've, I've uh, the only Tarantino movie that I've missed is The Hateful Eight. I still need to see that one. But this one, I think it's a movie that I needed to see at this point in my life. Because I'm I'm the prototypical struggling artist, and I related very closely to the character of Rick Dalton and what Mm -hmm. the movie is ultimately about. And we'll get into this later, but it's a very hopeful film. It's a hopeful film about... It's basically yeah. a very hopeful film about how just because one chapter of your life is ending doesn't mean the next chapter might not be just as exciting, if not more, you know? And, yeah. And, you know, that really resonated with me. And I think it's, you know, I think it's Tarantino's most hopeful film. It's one that resonated agree. with me very deeply. And I absolutely absolutely love it and i and i do want to make the time to see it in the theater before it before it uh, it comes out on dvd and blu-ray because seeing this in the theater was amazing
0: i absolutely agree yeah and i think there is a really strong case to be made that it is a 10 out of 10 film so uh jess what would you rate this movie out of 10 before we move on to the spoiler section spoiler
2: i'd give it like it's said it's a great movie it's one of my favorites so far this year and I'd give it a 9.5 like you and it's like the more I think about it and the more time that passes I like it more and more I've seen it twice now and it is a lot better the second time through you pick up on some more things and it's a Tarantino movie you're gonna keep seeing things the next 10 times
0: you, you see it you know so with that said, uh, let's move uh, explicitly into the spoiler-filled portion of the podcast. So if you are not wanting to get any spoilers for this movie, now would be the time to press stop. Or actually, even better, press pause, go see the movie, then come back and press play on this podcast again. That's, that's yeah. what I would Yeah, hide recommend. your kids, hide your wife, because it's time.
1: Go see this Movie. You will be smarter after you leave the theater. You will feel your brain cells growing. It's great.
2: (laughs) Yeah. One thing I did want to ask you guys real quick is how do we feel about this being Tarantino's penultimate film? He said he was going to record 10, and this is number 9.
1: Who
0: knows if that's that's really going to stick.
1: Honestly he could end with this movie. He could like this movie on would probably be the perfect capper on his career. Cause it's all about a career in the movies. So to me, it's actually kind of sad that this isn't going to be his last feature. Cause it, it would be such a great one to go out on. Yeah. It's such the perfect one thematically to go out. Talk on. about going right. out on top, um, you know, but it's not just that it's, it's also about, you know, a, a character, uh, the character like Rick Dalton. I really think that's Quentin, you know, writing a character based on himself where he's a guy that wonders if there's any place for him in a changing Mm -hmm. Hollywood system. And, you know, the the system that we have in place currently is definitely a lot more corporate-oriented. It's less oriented on art and more on, you know, Mm -hmm. selling a product. And a guy like Tarantino, he's all about the art Mm -hmm. and the experience of the film itself rather than, you know, merchandising and stuff like that. And because of that, I I think Dalton really kind of reflected a lot of of Tarantino's own anxieties because I think he's one of the few true filmmakers still working in the industry in this era i do think there will be a time for people like tarantino again in a in a couple of decades but in the current state we're in it's definitely a lot more money oriented and because of that i really felt um i mean you look at a guy like rick and he's he views himself as a relic who's on his way out and you wonder if that's how tarantino views himself and he shouldn't because he's he's a master he's a master filmmaker yeah right Yeah. So, uh, Eric, tell us how this movie made you feel. Uh, My biggest regret with this movie was that I accidentally figured out what was going to happen at the end before I saw the film. Oh, (laughs) Oh, Um, no. (laughs) And and because of that, I don't think that final frenzy was quite as rewarding Mm -hmm. as it would have been had I gone in blind. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say this. When that final fight happens i was i was dying oh, i was, was absolutely Crazy. dying in the theater i have n- i have never laughed and cheered so loud at a movie as i did during the end of this film because <laughs> it was such a that final 20 minutes alone is a masterpiece it really right? is <laughs> you know it's an absolute masterpiece
0: nobody gives characters that you hate better comeuppance than tarantino i think
1: <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, and and I think I think in this one he actually does a better job than he did with um, with old Adolf and Goebbels in Inglorious Bastards because the sheer amount of overkill that it, well, spoiler alert. I mean, if you're listening to the podcast, okay, the Manson family gets massacred in this movie. They they break into Rick Dalton's house and you know pick a fight with Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth and they get completely destroyed and it is. Mm-hmm it is beautiful whereas in the actual
0: history of events now those members of the manson family did in 1969 go to that area but they actually didn't go into a rick dalton's house since uh they kept going up the drive yeah they just went up the drive to uh the polanski house and they killed sharon tate and the other people that were there right and sharon tate was just like in the movie like eight and a half months pregnant at the time And so this was one of the more, you know, grisly murders from the Manson family that was in the news back then. But I'm glad you brought this up, Eric, because I really think that to get the most mileage out of this movie, I think that no matter how you go into this movie, you're going to have a hell of a time. I mean, it's just going to be a great cinematic experience. But I have this inkling that if you actually know the history of that Incident of those murders that when you're watching the movie, it actually creates more tension, right? Because oh, oh it
1: absolutely does. Right, it like, well it it does. Absolutely does. Like like the scene, like the scene when um, when uh, Cliff Booth goes to the Spa Movie Ranch. Like that's mm-hmm. uh, that's straight out of Midsummer it, it, or The yeah. Wicker Man. It's terrifying. It's a yeah. very scary sequence, and it is scary until the end of the scene when he beats up the guy that stabbed his tire. And yeah. incidentally. Yeah. The, the, the guy he beats up in that scene was another rather notorious member of the family who didn't participate in the Tate murders. Mm-hmm. He participated in the in the later LaBianca murders. And he's also which, the uh, only Manson one of the Manson, Manson family
0: to ever get out of prison. He, he got out on parole at some point after he was in prison yeah. for a long time. But yeah. yeah, I just think that, you know, when I mentioned before that Tarantino has created something sublime in this movie, you know, all those scenes with Sharon Tate, with Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, you know when she's just sort of like living her best life in hollywood where she's sort of this up-and-coming talent and she's at the you know at the party at the playboy mansion and she goes into the movie theater and you know remind tells him where steve that, McQueen uh, is. <laughs> oh. right where steve mcqueen is yeah but the thing is that whole time that she's living this like ideal like just wonderful life and she's so happy you're thinking oh my god this is 1969. This is, you know, I, I, I like I feel what's coming. So there was this little tiny ball of dread in the pit of my stomach that was just growing throughout the movie. But at the same time, that didn't diminish just the the sublimity. I keep using this word, just the the magic. I like of making these... up words too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not made up um, of these times. I found that to be a really effective part of the film-going experience for me watching it, and then of course that added to my enjoyment of that final fight scene, where the Manson family just gets their asses handed to them. So, what, what do first. you think about that? Did that? <laughs> did you have a, a? I know you said you kind of learned what the end was going to be before this, but did you? You know, what do you think about those comments? Oh, I mean, I think. Um... I think it sums it up very well.
1: I I honestly, one of the reasons I think it would have been more effective for me had I not known the ending is because I also would have had that tension, which Mm -hmm. I unfortunately didn't have because I knew how it was going to turn out. And uh, one of the things I love about this film is how it tries to define Sharon Tate as her own person. Like it Mm -hmm. tries to separate her as much as possible from From the legacy of, you know, yeah from the legacy of the Manson murders yeah. or prolansky yeah and then basically what she is in this movie is she's not just a character she's a symbol yes. she's a symbol of the hollywood you know the hollywood ideal of mm-hmm. somebody who is right. watching their dreams come true she is living mm-hmm. every young actor's fantasy in this movie mm-hmm. and because of that we really we really like her and i think that she doesn't interact too much with the uh, Dalton or Booth until the very end of the movie is kind of the point because she represents yeah. the dream that both of them are chasing. Yeah. So of course they're not going to meet her until the end when they finally re achieve that status that they're that they're looking for. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I don't think uh, her and Booth even looked at each other. I don't even think they she ever saw Cliff Booth.
0: No, it was always there. She was always kind of in the background where you know maybe they hear the music she's playing you know next door or right. something
2: like that. Yeah. He climbs up the roof to do the peeping
1: Tom thing into her, into her window. And yeah, she's the princess in the castle on the
0: hill. That, that's who <laughs> she is. Right. Yeah, interesting. I love that analogy but, here. Because it's a
1: fantasy. This movie is a fairy tale version of Hollywood, but that's why it's so brilliant.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's like,
2: it's like you said, Will. You know, uh, it shows uh, Sharon Tate basically living her best life. And as the movie goes, you you do get that sense of dread of what's happening. And then the third act when Cliff has Brandy his pit pool at the vet, you know it says 5:30 p.m on the that day, the day that Sh- the Sharon Tate murders went down. Oh yeah, and that's Countdown. when you start getting ripped ramped up into it. it's like, oh boy here it comes and just goes kind of through the scenes of everybody's day and what they're doing and You see the Manson family coming up the drive and you just start getting tense in your seat and you start getting the chills like, oh, boy,
0: hold on. It's coming. (laughs) Yeah. So, Jess, what would you say was the part of this movie that affected you the most deeply? Um, Or what did you love the most about it, maybe? Basically, all the scenes with Sharon Tate were, you know,
2: very nostalgic. And they kind of brought a a happiness and a peace because she was just... Uh, like you both said, she was just living the dream, and it it kind of brought that feeling to you. It's like this is the perfect way for her to spend her last day here on the planet, as far as we know. But it it does just give that that mm-hmm. feeling of calm and
0: sublimity. And I think it's important that she, when she was you know living her best life, if that's how we're kind of referring to it, that you never once, or at least I never once. Got this sense of like, because sometimes for whatever reason, maybe the character's arrogant or they're not grateful for what they have or the way that they deal with other characters, for example, or maybe they have a dysfunctional relationship with the close people, whatever it is, I can I can yeah. see how there could be a character in a similar situation that the audience would be made to resent or. Or feel or like maybe they didn't deserve what they had, or have some kind of negative connotation. But not one for one single nanosecond during that movie, did I have any of those negative feelings for the Sharon Tate character? And you know, granted, right. in real life, she was supposed to be this wonderful, you know, charming person. And so it seems to be true to that, true to you know historical fact in that sense. But uh, I, I thought that was just really interesting the way he was able to uh pull that off and bring us into this sort of fairy tale realm absolutely
1: absolutely yeah
0: and the
2: other scene that really had that uh suspense that you get towards the end of the movie was when cliff booth goes to spawn ranch and meets what was the girl's name that he picked up was it pussycat
1: or something
0: pussycat she yeah. She's based on a couple different uh Manson family members, I think right
1: yeah, like like I don't think there was an actual person in Pussycat,
2: yeah, I don't know, but they get to the spawn ranch and he's like, "Oh, does George still live here?" and that's when there's like a switch flipped. You basically see everyone in the Manson's family's demeanor just changes right in that instant. They all just get real guarded and you know anytime. He's walking around on the on the ranch. They have the the rest of the people inside the house and they're like watching him. He's he's walking over there. He's the text is talking to him. He seems cool. Now he's walking towards the house and then everyone starts freaking out and that
0: just is a suspense building. Well that whole sequence is so building. so tense, you know. And oh, yeah. if you know if you know anything about the Manson family and this time period, you know, the whole time that he's giving her that ride in the car, you're like, Don't do it, man she's yeah. she's luring you in this is this is bad news yeah and
2: that was one of the scenes that kind of all that suspense and then it like fizzles out like someone was filling a balloon with suspense 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 and then they lost the balloon
0: because
2: it, <laughs> it ended on nothing
0: <laughs> i don't know. You know i i didn't feel that way because even though he left you know it got, he got the guy to change his tire and he left I, w- I ha- was left with this lingering feeling like this ain't over, you know, this right. ain't over. So I did want to get, Eric, your thoughts on the how this film compares to historical fact, right? Like the events that actually happened. In your mind, what is Tarantino saying or doing when he's making these changes, you know, in this story that portrays a lot of elements very faithfully to historical fact? What do you think about that?
1: yeah well i mean it may be hard to believe given how the film ends how close a lot of it is to reality because you know the, the manson family really did take over the movie ranch you know the character the character you know played by bruce dern again i, I believe it was bruce dern yeah yeah, george he was real and he was you know really being taken advantage oh, of. oh by the way cult, you know, uh george that character
0: him. was originally going to be played by a burt reynolds and he even came in and was waiting oh, yeah, for it's... it but then he died before they got really into production
1: yeah, because Burt Reynolds' uh, his friendship with his stunt man was actually the basis for you know Rick Dalton's friendship with the character of Cliff Booth. That's mm. what it was based on. Oh, because really, what you know? Because again, which is one of the reasons he wanted to get uh, to get Reynolds for the part. Because mm-hmm. again, what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about. It's not just about the glamorous people we see. It's about the working stiffs behind the scenes. Because yeah. there are a lot of blue collar workers in Hollywood, like Cliff Booth. And how the film compares and contrasts their two lives is really interesting, because before I get to you know back to the, you know the historical validity of the film, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" is three movies. There's Rick Dalton's movie, which you know is the kind of artificial in front of the camera starlight view of Hollywood, and that's the one that's more extravagant. It's a bit more fun and humorous, and there is a more unique style to it because it's switching back and forth between what's going on in the TV show that he's filming and what's going on on the set. Then you have Cliff Booth's movie, which is a bit a lot more laid back. It's more grounded. It's more nitty-gritty and dirty. You see the smelly underside of Hollywood, and that's where he finds the Manson cult. And yeah. then you have the third movie, which is the final you know, half hour, which is, you know, the total deconstruction of the myth of the Manson family in the style of this kind mm. of, it's basically Chinatown, if the, except if the ending of Chinatown was hilarious. <laughs> I never thought of it that but, way. Uh, because it feels like, it, it, the, the final 30 minutes, it feels a lot like that final act of Chinatown, but then it just turns it over on its head, which is interesting because Chinatown was a film by Polanski, who was married to Tate yeah, right. yeah. But anyway on your question of you know the historical accuracy of the film the film is even when it deviates it is remarkably accurate because mm-hmm. the scene where uh charles manson who's never who never utters his name on camera he's in that one scene where, where he's Dalton trying is to up, find the is up changing the antenna yeah 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 that scene really happened and and the and the thing is that scene is the reason this whole thing happened because the only reason Manson ordered an attack on that house was because he was pissed off that the record producer who used to live there dodged him. Yeah. yeah. So the, all the so all of this was because he was upset that he couldn't get a record deal, you know, and it, it's really, you know, pitiful when you get down to it.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: but but a number of the other things, like, uh, for example, Dalton, you know, him starring on a real show, him having a cameo on a, on a real episode of FBI, even though they digitally altered him, or... Uh, digitally altered the footage to incorporate him or Mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of the film was when he fantasizes about being in the great escape which was amazing oh yeah where they where they switched they switched steve mcqueen out with him and the footage was seamless um right but the reason i think because i'm I'm rambling a bit so i apologize about that but the reason i think tarantino you know tries to stick close to reality is so he can subvert it that much more Mm. because I think, you know, him sticking close to reality helps him deconstruct the Manson family that much more. Because uh, there's a number of uh, details about the film that are actually, again, surprisingly accurate. Like um, the one gal who, uh, who drives off before the massacre takes place. When, uh, you know, she's yeah. kind of getting cold feet and, you know, the guy rather stupidly gives her the keys and we know immediately she's going to take off and, she, and run, and she does. That girl was actually based on a real-life Manson family member named Linda Kasabian, Mm -hmm. who was present at the Tate murders, but unlike everyone else there, she was horrified by what was going on. Yeah, she didn't participate. And she even tried to stop it. She lied and told them that there was a car coming to try and get them to stop. And she even, at one point, did run to the car and was considering leaving to get help, but she was worried if she did that her daughter, who was at the ranch, would be killed. And she later testified against the family at the trial and uh, was instrumental in getting them convicted. And because she was the only member there who, you know, felt any remorse for what happened, you know, the movie decides to spare her. Right. And it lets her off the hook.
0: And that, and that actress, by the way, is uh, Maya Hawke, uh, who's the daughter of uh, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, and who was also in Stranger Things season three. Just a little... Tidbit for yep you.
1: stranger things three. She played she plays Robin. Mm-hmm. But uh, another one of my favorite parts, another one of my favorite parts is uh, and, and this is a, a moment where I think it kind of really it's the most uh, obvious example, I think, of the Manson family myth being deconstructed apart from the fact that they all get horribly mutilated. but it's when um, it's when Tex Watson, and that was his real name, Tex Watson. Mm-hmm. When uh, Pitt asks him what his name was, and he says, "I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's oh, yeah. business." And yeah. Watson actually did say that during the home invasion, during the tape murders, and it's it's been quoted numerous times, and you know, film and literature. Rob Zombie even had um, had a character quote it almost verbatim in The Devil's Rejects. Right, and uh, you know, kind of people build it up as this very chilling moment. And Cliff mm-hmm. Booth hears it, he says, "That's stupid." Mm-hmm. that is stupid and, and, and when you really think of, and when you really think about it you really think about it, it's like yeah it is kind of stupid isn't it it's yeah nothing chilling about it it's, it's and dumb i, I it's love dumb. how <laughs> when i
0: was in the movie theater and that part came i you know the he's on the gurney and the paramet or the police are asking him for his report and they're and they're like he, he said i'm the the devil and uh i'm here to do some devil shit <laughs> and, the, <Yeah. laughs> and the and the theater laughs that that got a big laugh in the movie theater, and I think that that's kind of what Tarantino's going for, and like that's the successful deconstruction of that infamous line, right? Where he really, tur- I I just love how he takes these people and he he turns it upside down and really humiliates them and shows you know what fuck ups they are. Um, so I, I got a lot of uh, enjoyment out of that. I guess there's a component of, like, sh- uh, schadenfreude there, you know, um, even though it's in a fictional movie. Right. Yeah. Jess, uh, how did that final fight sequence strike you and and what really jumped out at, at you about it? And how did that affect your whole, you know, experience of the movie?
2: Well, I think uh, a lot of the comedic effect was brought into that scene by the fact that uh, Pussycat earlier in the movie uh sold Cliff Booth a cigarette that was dipped in acid or LCD. I don't think that was
0: Pussycat though that was a different that was a different character. Are you sure okay yeah,
1: I ended up making the same mistake too initially, but yeah, yeah uh, will is right uh the character who gives you know booth the the cigarette is named Pussycat in the film, whereas the character who attacks him. Uh, In the house, uh, that is a character uh, named, that's uh, Susan Atkins. Right. And uh, her nickname was Sadie, not Pussycat. So it is two different characters portrayed in the film by two different actresses. But they do look the same. They do look similar because they kind of got the, you know, the kind of long black. They got the hippie thing going on, you know. Yeah. 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 But
2: anyway, he gets this uh,
1: acid-dipped
2: cigarette from the girl and he saved it at uh, Dalton's house. And he decided, you know, after they had just gotten back from their trip to Rome and whatnot, I'm not sure exactly how far, how much later that was from their return. It was like six months. But, I uh, think it
0: said it was like six months later, yeah.
2: Okay. But mm-hmm. yeah, they were just uh, hanging out, and they all went out to the bar to have drinks and stuff, and, you know, just be two guys together, and ended up at home, and uh, Booth is like, you know what, I think... uh It's time. <laughs> I think yeah. I think this is the time to uh, have this cigarette. So he takes Brandy for a walk, the dog and he lights this acid dipped cigarette and he walks down the street just as the Manson family is coming up mm-hmm. and uh, they're doing their whole thing with uh, Dalton he's trying to make a margarita and he basically saves Sharon Tate's life by getting pissed off because right. they have a noisy car So he goes out and screams at the people, and their plan was originally go up the hill, which would end up ending in the Tate murders, and
0: instead they decide after they realize Dalton is – he played the character. What I love about the whole thing with the acid cigarette and them being like so incredibly drunk that night is that like – so Cliff Booth, even though he's – high out of his mind and and at least somewhat drunk by the point that the uh the manson family comes into the house like he still kicks their asses so hard oh yeah <laughs> you know yeah and he he doesn't he
2: doesn't believe it or understand what's going on at first and he's like are you real and like the guy holds his, his gun up to him attacks uh, holds his gun out and then you know he puts his hand his his hand out with a little finger gun he's like pew pew and i was like oh he's <laughs> gonna get shot there and then you can see brandy the dog on the couch she's getting agitated but cliff just puts his he has a little hand signal for her to keep her mm-hmm. calm very and, well-trained dog you know yeah and the, during this time the one redhead girl's getting uh francesca out of the back and brad pitt's performance in this scene is just hilarious you know he's just funny 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 the way he's reacting to the people and then things start to take a gentle twist towards uh the dangerous and that's when he gives brandy the signal a little and brandy jumps off the couch and just attacks uh tex
1: and by the way I would love to give Brandy uh, credit as the most awesome dog since the Beast from The Hills Have Eyes. Oh yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Hills Have Eyes by Wes Craven, but, um, yeah, uh... Yeah. It's about some cannibals that attack a family in a trailer home, mm-hmm. and the family has a German Shepherd named Beast, and the Beast fucks those cannibals up. <laughs> yeah. I haven't and, seen yeah, that in a long yeah, time. Yeah, I got the Blu-rays great. But, yeah, I mean, Brandy, yeah, she, um she takes a good bite out of both tex watson and susan atkins she tears them to shreds oh, it's, and it's, it's uh,
2: the most brutal scene i've you know watched in a film for probably ever i mean it's once he has that thus begins like five minutes of just total brutality
1: i was surprised that it only lasted five minutes because watching it in the theater <laughs> it felt more like 10 oh, it, it just did. went on and on. oh yeah like and it's the, like the same like
2: when he's <laughs> the dog latches on to Tex and everyone's like oh and then the the black haired girl Sadie I think uh, starts running at him and uh, Cliff's holding that can of dog food it's I think the label on the dog food says good food for bad dogs it's Wolf's Tooth <laughs> uh,
0: dog food I believe yeah yeah and
2: he takes this can it's like a large largish can that you'd get uh, tomatoes in or something and he just throws it at this girl from like 6 feet away and connects solidly with her face just shatters
1: her nose and everything and she goes down and then i think that's the moment that moment when the can hit susan atkins in the face that's when the theater i was in everybody just started laughing and they mm-hmm. didn't stop
0: yeah it like was like when a... the dog
1: bit when the dog bit it was a wince but once that can hit her face that we were all on the floor it was wonderful oh yeah once once the
2: can the can was the laughs but then after that it was just every seven seconds another ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> like like when the red the dog he switches brandy over from Tex to sadie and then the redheaded girl comes out and she tackles brad or uh cliff booth and <laughs> she accidentally stabs him like in, in his hip, in the side of his, his waist there. And they both look at it and he like touches it. He's still tripping balls at this point, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he's just like, tink, tink, tink. And then he just grabs her and smashes her face off of every into horizontal everything. and vertical yeah. surface everywhere. It's like the phone hanging on the pole there in the kitchen. Smash! You know, it's the old uh, rotary style phone. With the two prongs sticking out where you hang the phone (laughs) up, smash, smash. Then the marble table, and then the the hearth on the fireplace, the wall. He's like basically up and down the wall in that room, just smashing. I think this whole
0: sequence, this whole like fight scene near the end of the movie is is great because you know it's like this infinitely enjoyable scene. It, it has, like, everything. There's, like, some violence. There's humor. There's, I mean, there's real stakes going on and all this stuff. But at the same time, if the previous, you know, hour and a half of the movie or whatever it was hadn't been the way it was, this scene might not have worked. You know? Um, it's really well, something. That's, that's
2: the thing. It's, it's like you said, it's so enjoyable. And only Tarantino can take a movie where three people get horrifically and brutally murdered and make it <laughs> enjoyable and funny you know <laughs> at the same time yeah
1: it's great yeah because uh, the level of overkill was just uh, was just great i i and i know that that's one of the things that people you know me in particular found so appalling about the tape murders was the level of overkill because right. the sheer brutality of those killings was just completely uncalled for you know You know, on top of, you know, being murdered, they were also, you know, so horribly mutilated because, you know, uh, Watson and Atkins, Atkins is actually the one who killed Sharon Tate. You know, they
0: completely went insane. And she was pregnant. She was like eight and a half months pregnant.
1: Yeah. and and, uh, And Sharon Tate told her, told her, like, please don't kill me. I'm pregnant. And Atkins, you know, rather coldly said, bitch, I don't care about you or your baby. And then, you know, stabbed her, you know, viciously. And I think one of the reasons that Susan Atkins is treated the worst out of any of them in the movie is because of that. Like the movie. Right.
0: Is she the one who was sitting for, in the backseat who looked really young and was like, I just want to kill him, kill him. And she got like real excited. Was that her? Yeah. yeah. The black hair girl. Yeah.
1: And of course, and of course, she's the one who winds up in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. But
1: um, I think the level of overkill was, you know, payback you know, for,
0: for what happened oh, for yeah. what, uh, during the Tate murders. Yeah, and they,
2: they got what they originally did to Sharon.
0: Well, you know, and now yeah. that whole sequence is immortalized in the minds of, you know, millions of people. And, you know, that's how when the topic comes up, that's the thing that a lot of people are going to think of. And I, I like to think that, you know, that tips the scales, if ever so slightly, towards justice in the world. So right. thank you, Quentin Tarantino. The imaginary
2: much. scales of karma.
0: Well, that's the
1: uh, that's the magic of movies. Because uh, now, before we move on, I I would like to say I think basically what Tarantino did with this film was his equivalent of a Disney movie, and <laughs> I huh. I think the, the bet. Let me explain. Let me explain. Yeah. What a lot! What uh, Disney movies do a lot. And especially during the Disney Renaissance, starting with The Little Mermaid, is they would take these fairy tales, which actually had really dark and depressing endings, oh, like yeah. The Little Mermaid, and then they would adapt them and give them happy endings. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's what mm-hmm. Tarantino does with this movie here: is he takes a real life Hollywood tragedy and gives it the fair, the Hollywood fairy tale ending. And it's it's right. uh, it's really a tribute, you know, to the magic of movies, and also a good uh, tip of the hat to the people whose you know careers were cut short way too soon, you know, because there was some real talent in that house and they did not deserve what happened to them.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a great, uh, I never thought of it as his version of, you know, like, uh, of like a Disney movie. That's really interesting. Well, on that note, you know, I I think we can all agree that that's going to go down in history as one of the most iconic scenes, uh, in film history. So let's, I want to talk about the character of Rick Dalton a little bit. Um, and one of the Rick yeah, and, and there's a lot to be said about it, of course. But I'll just start with this. Uh, you know, there's that scene where he's he's got the guest role on, I think it was Lancer, uh, the show Lancer, mm, and yeah. he's and yeah. and for the first time in his career, they're changing his look. You know, Tarantino and uh, DiCaprio have talked about how this character is like, you know, he always. In every movie that he was in and every show that he was in, he was sort of this, like, classy guy with the pompadour hair, you know, running the comb through it. And he'd never been on a job where they wanted him to change his look before because, you know, previous to that, every role that he played, he was, you know, kind of that, like, macho man, leading man, you know, sort of thing from, you know, the 50s Yeah, he always played the
2: same... Like, person. He always played the yeah. same personality, never had any... Faith. So now like, he's being like...
0: pushed, and then there's, you know, he was hung over that day, right? Because <laughs> he's got his head in the in the ice and everything when the director comes in. But the moment that I'm talking about is after he he flubs up his lines, right? And he's back in his trailer, oh, yeah. and he's he goes through that whole <laughs> tirade, like, against himself, where he's like, so stupid, you embarrassed yourself in front of all those people! And he's, like, shaking blah, 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 and, like... Blah, 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 blah pacing and going back and forth and just kind of like really sort of wallowing in this like humiliation and feeling like he's you right. know really fucked up and of course he's already self-conscious about the fact that he feels washed up well speaking as a creative person who's also a writer and you know uh, I, I even used to act back in the day this was a very relatable moment for me and I feel like anybody that's that's an artist, uh, you know, any type of artist, you know, involved in creative endeavors, I feel like so many of us have those moments, whether or not we're literally screaming out loud at ourselves or not, right? At some point, oh, we've all kind of go through that. Well, I'm not saying I haven't. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying that that may, it may not have manifested that exact way for every single person, but I think that there's a huge. Nugget of truth in that—that that was a really, I just really love his performance in that moment because I really connected with it, and uh, it just—it was just some—it just was one more thing that made his character a lot more sympathetic to me and really made me identify with him. And I don't know—it's—it's it's just even though this film has such a fairy tale quality, it's also balanced by that kind of realism. You know, and I just found it to be one of the more affecting parts of the movie. And so I'm interested to, you know, about what you guys think of that scene and also uh, the character of Rick Dalton in general. So why don't we start with uh, Eric?
1: Well, again, you know, as I said before, this movie is three movies. And the Rick Dalton film, you know, which uh, focuses on him acting on this television show and the pressures he's feeling, is, is such a wonderful segment of the movie because of how seamlessly it translates between the show Rick is in and him acting. Because the movie, when he's acting in those scenes, the movie does not let you see that it's a set. It right. wants you to feel like you're watching the show. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not you're no longer watching Rick Dalton. You're watching this character. I think there was only the one moment gets, when it
0: reversed and showed us like the the cameras and stuff, but you're absolutely go ahead. It's
1: it's when he flubs the line. Right. It's it's right. when he flubs the line. So the idea is the better he gets, the more it pulls you in. And then suddenly mm-hmm it was such a great moment for me because during the final scene when he, you know, kind of has that big breakup moment, I forgot that this was just a show he was acting. And I right. thought this was the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, th- and then the scene ended, I'm like, Oh wait, that's right. He's an actor. And it was such a wonderful, <laughs> magical moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when, uh, when we get to that ending, it, it's such a great contrast to that previous rant in the trailer Mm -hmm. To when he's at the end of the day and the actress has complimented him and he's really hit it out of the park and he's like, you know what? Maybe being a bad guy can be a lot of fun. Maybe this is a good thing to explore to try and do a different kind of acting, because Rick fucking Dalton. And that
0: was actually like a really powerful performance that he ended up giving. You know, once he you know, once he got through the, you know, the the difficult moment in his trailer. And of course, you know, the little girl gives him that great compliment. And on one hand, it's kind of funny that he gets so emotional over it, something that this nine-year-old girl says to him. But on the other hand, what she said is true. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's the best acting I've ever seen in my life. But the the compliment is, is well uh, earned, I think, for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you get the sense too, Absolutely. at least I got the sense that that became a turning point in his career and I think that goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning Eric about the the theme, one of the themes of this movie. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Well, basically, I mean, Rick Dalton was
1: a guy who was afraid to to move beyond the idea of a classic Hollywood leading man. You know, he had this show where he played this this, you know, kind of leading man character for 3 seasons. And you know, when when the specter of him you know changing and playing a different character rears its head early on in the movie, he recoils at it. There's mm-hmm. that great scene when you know he's offered a part in three spaghetti westerns, and you know he kind of goes on a rant you know with Cliff Booth and says, "I don't want to play in those fake ass westerns this is bullshit <laughs> which is which is of course ironic, because you know Tarantino's a huge fan of spaghetti westerns, mm-hmm. so right. Tarantino himself disagrees with the statement of his character, and the idea is you know. Rick is so afraid of giving up on this image, he's afraid to build a new one. And in this scene, he builds a new image, and it works. And he's like, you know, maybe I ought to give these spaghetti westerns a try, see how it works out. And, and it was good it's for the his start career. of a new career for him. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. yeah, it's the start of a new career for him. It's a new beginning. It's closing the book on one chapter of his life, but opening the book on another chapter. And that's really what I think his character is all about. It's about, you know, being willing to change and you know moving on with your life and you know climbing up in the world instead of just doing the same thing over and over again,
0: yeah I, I couldn't agree more, so Jess, what are your thoughts about Rick Dalton and uh, the scenes that we've been talking about?:
1: Yeah,
2: basically, all the lancer scenes I thought were great um, when he's in the in the beginning when he's in the trailer and he's splashing his face with the water, and then the director comes in, and the director's telling him, "Oh, you gotta do this and do that," and he's all like, "Well. How are people gonna know it's Rick Dalton if I'm got all this hair and facial hair and stuff going on? And the director's like, I don't want him to know it's you. You know, and that's that's like you
0: mentioned earlier, that's part of the struggle. It seems clear to me at the same time, it seems clear to me that this is a director who really believes in him as an actor. Because oh, yeah. I think that you exactly. also could have played that scene and maybe rewritten some of the lines as a kind of like absurd, like this is how wacky things can be in Hollywood, you know, where you're on this, right. you know, show, and he's at the end of his rope and all this stuff. But I, I, I think that you know, the way in which he played it, where this director really did believe in him, and he was pushing him to transform Open and up. to transform his yeah. career, yeah, was, spread his wings and fly. Well, it's perfectly in line with with the theme that that Eric just explained. So anyway, I just I thought I would mention that. Please continue.
2: Yeah. And uh, you know then he he's on set after he gets his facial hair on, he's waiting for his uh, mustache to dry, so he goes to sit down and he or he walks down that alley and hawks up a big loogie and throws his cup in the street and then turns around there's this little eight year old girl sitting in the chair and she was a great actress, I don't know how a great station on her. Yeah, it he's was sitting funny because when
1: I was watching that scene, when I was watching that scene, I thought it was supposed to be a Natalie Wood because she would have been around that age at the time.
2: Oh, okay, um, is it supposed to
1: be Meryl Streep? I, though I don't, it might, it might be. I'm not sure. I, I think I heard Tarantino Natalie say Wood. that
0: in an interview. Actually, oh, that's I interesting. I could be, I could be wrong, but uh, I think she is about the right age to have been, you know, that character based on her. Uh, I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, and and she's reading a book and. In... He sits down and starts reading his book, and they start going into like what his book is about. And it's basically, I can't remember the exact story in the book. It
0: was some but, pulpy um, western type of a thing, I think. Yeah,
2: but it's kind of the, the guy is feeling the same you know, feelings and having the same insecurities that Dalton's having about himself. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a different way to do things. And it goes from I, there when he meets up with, oh, what were you saying?
0: Well, I I mean, I just was thinking as you mentioned that it's like, God, every time I see DiCaprio in a movie, I come to appreciate his acting even more because I just love that he's talking to this nine year old girl and she's basically the one telling him about acting and then he's yeah, trying to explain the story the of this book to her, and he gets so <laughs> emotional because it really does hit home to him. And he has that line where he's like, "Oh, I guess guess this book is a little better than I gave it credit for." Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. She helped him realize, you know, a better way to look at the book, which makes him realize he can also use that same tactic to look at himself in a better light too.
0: Would you, would you say that this girl is like his big mentor figure in in the movie? Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, anybody else that might have sort of, you know, been, uh, played that role. I would would say, yeah.
2: I mean, it wasn't uh, Cliff Booth that did that. I mean, I think it was her
0: and the studio exec that Al Pacino played. I I think maybe we're probably the two bigger. What do you think about that, Eric? Or is that not even a a useful uh, filter to look at it through?
1: No, it's actually a very good way to look at that character because she is kind of the sagely wise figure who comes in and gets it gets him going again. Like Mm -hmm. that is her function, you know, that's that it's a that it's, you know, somebody who's just getting started in the business, who has a fresh perspective on things. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that makes the scene all the more, you know, sweet and funny. I don't think it would have been, you know, as effective had it been an actor who was in his same age bracket or older. Right, like I think the idea was it had to be someone who just got into Hollywood and is learning the ropes. But they, since they're just getting into it, their perspective on it is more fresh they, and less yeah. They haven't been jaded and tainted yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, that is the beginning of his renewal as well. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and you know she's on set. And she's like, you know, I'm a professional. I'm here to work. And you know, that is you know the exact opposite of Rick's <laughs> Rick's <laughs> attitude, where he wants to look good. But right. by the end of it, he's like, you know what. I'm here to work. Let's work. Let's do this thing. And they play the scene together and it's, it's great. It's one of the best parts of the movie.
2: Yeah. And the whole scene with him and Timothy Dalton or Timothy Oliphant, Timothy Dalton, where they're at the table and they get the mezcal. And (laughs) like you said, you forgot you're watching him act in a movie in the movie. So it's like, he's sitting there talking and he spits out his mezcal. And then he's like staring down the floor. And he's like a uh, line <laughs> and that's after the they have the camera do like this sweeping arc around the table, and one of the cool cinematography things they did in this was that scene because they used Tarantino's cameras as if they were the cameras that the director in that movie was using, so you see the camera arc around and it mm. swirls around Timothy Oliphant, and then he says line and then you see the camera go back and slowly reset you know back to the way the scene started i thought that was a cool little uh
0: now isn't this isn't this the scene that luke perry was in as well no this
2: was before when they were still when they were in the bar um they were talking about lancer uh, and luke perry is one of lancer's right hand men i guess
0: Okay. But that's It was just a they It the, was just a thrill seeing Luke Perry in something again because I think he passed away shortly after production uh, oh of yeah. this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, he had so a I just wanted to make sure pretty to big a stroke and Oh
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, this was at the scene where they were talking about it and then they get the beans and he's talking about going after Lancer. Yeah. And then we never actually get to see him go after Lancer, but Lancer
0: sends his men and he holds the little girl hostage basically. So at this point, I wanted to ask you both, and we'll start with Eric just because uh, you you were just uh, going through some things, Jess. But Eric, what's something else that you really wanted to make sure to talk about in terms of this movie today?
1: Well, I think um, I think it would be interesting to talk about the one scene that I have maybe a slight problem with, mm. and it was the uh, it was the Bruce Lee scene. Uh, basically, uh-huh. the context is. Cliff Booth has a difficult time getting work in Hollywood because he picked a fight with Bruce Lee on the set of The Green Hornet. And this is shown in a flashback where, you know, Bruce Lee is kind of acting like a prima donna. He's very vain. He kind of like badmouths a, a, a wrestler or a boxer that Booth is a big fan of. And Booth kind of like steps up and says, nah, nah, he could kick your ass. And then they get into a sparring match and Booth throws him into the side of a car and is subsequently fired, you know, from, mm-hmm. from the shoot. Um hilarious think,
2: scene, by the way.
1: Oh, it, it's it's a very funny scene. I disagree with how Bruce Lee is portrayed in the mm. film. Because by all by all accounts he was, you know, not like the character portrayed in the movie at all, that he was, you know, a very um very cultured, sensitive, and humble person, not at right. all like the the jackass we see in the movie. At the same yeah, time, he I think it was a great eat. scene. I think it was a great scene in the film because it shows how dangerous booth is cuz he straight up throws right. Bruce Lee into the side of a car and the whole movie you know there's that potential for ass kickage in this guy and then it just comes exploding out at the end
0: mm-hmm. right um that that is interesting and i was i was wondering about that scene as well and i believe i purposefully did not read a whole bunch of stuff about this movie before i went to go see it but I did read a story about when Bruce Lee worked on the Green Hornet where there was a scene they were supposed to film where like a, like a henchman of the bad guy or one of the bad guys actually was gonna win against Bruce Lee in a fight on screen. And Bruce Lee got really mad about that and he badgered and badgered them until they changed the scene so that it ended in a draw and purportedly oh. after they finished filming it, Bruce Lee was like looking at the, the actor he was, you know, fighting in the scene and like gave him a dirty look and said something to the effect of, You're lucky this wasn't a real fight. Because <laughs> I guess he got, he was just kind of worked up about the fact that, you know, they were going to try and make him lose on camera. So I don't know what that says about him being the way that he was portrayed in this movie, but I just thought it was an interesting. Um, yeah, maybe anecdote. that's Tarantino's, you know, taking. Uh, could be based on that because I don't I, I don't yeah, think you be can based clearly on that say
2: taking rights with that scene maybe he doesn't agree with an actor you know saying something like that like oh that would never happen to me I'm too strong
0: or too tough Well, for that to happen in, so the fight once to upon a time in Hollywood kind of ended in a draw I mean I don't think you can say that Bruce Lee totally right. lost uh, he did get thrown against a car but yeah. then again he also was not trying to truly hurt uh, the other guy um
1: true I do think I do think an interesting interpretation of that scene came from one of my colleagues at Screen Hub where they and I, I know Tarantino will probably disagree with this um, but the, inter- the interpretation my colleague had was that it was not the way the fight actually went but that that was Booth's biased memory
0: of it oh uh, because it was oh, okay. a flashback it was a flashback
1: yeah it is a flashback and that I think makes the scene funnier
0: yeah I think you're right. I so, uh, I, I, I really like that uh, interpretation, and I also love how the way it was constructed in the movie, where he was kind of it took this so bef- before he had the flashback, he was fixing that antenna on top of the house, and he had just come from taking Rick to set where he was hoping to get some like stunt work, but Rick had to tell him, ah, unfortunately, I you know couldn't get you in. And then he's he's you can tell he's he's kind of a stoic guy, right? But he's kind of stewing about it. I think a little bit. And then he has this flashback, and it comes back from the flashback, which ends with him getting fired, basically, in his words. So he goes, oh, well, fair enough, (laughs) kind of a thing. So it's, you know, I think it just goes to show that Tarantino is just a master at uh, story structure. And, God, he makes everything entertaining. Yeah.
1: And I think it's interesting to kind of contrast Booth's uh, mini-movie with Dalton's mini-movie. Because Dalton's mini-movie is all about the illusion that you create, whereas with Booth, all we see is the behind-the-scenes stuff. We don't actually see a scene being filmed. It's all yeah. the people who work behind the camera who never get their dues.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And
1: I think that was one of the more, definitely one of the more interesting touches in the kind of like, and how the scale is kind of tipped between these two characters.
0: Yeah, I love that. So, Jess, what what's uh, an aspect of this movie or a scene or whatever it is that you really wanted to to talk about today?
2: Basically, like I mentioned earlier, there's the uh I went into the movie expecting to see a couple things and my original thought cuz I also didn't really research this movie before seeing it, but I expected to see more of the Manson family, you know, mm. being the bastards that they are. I mean, it all came together in the end, but in a lot of ways, like I mentioned The movie just kind of... There's a slow build. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. Because as I'm sitting there watching it, I'm like an hour and a half in. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What's going on here? Because by that point, nothing was falling together. Nothing had really happened. It's basically just kind of like a hangout movie. You know, between Rick and Cliff. And when I said earlier that there was really no character arcs. there, there, There are, but it's just... A long time coming, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. that was just kind of the feeling I got after a first viewing. After a second viewing and after a week or two thinking about it, that's when I've decided, no, I love this movie. This is a great movie. It's one of the best, both one of the best Quentin Tarantino movies and one of the best movies that I've seen. But at first, just my original feelings and original reactions was like, wait a second, what did I just watch? You know, I was, it was, it was a great, it was a great movie. I walked out saying, wow, that was a great movie. What the fuck was it about? You know, it's like, what really happened? You got to see Sharon Tate dance and go see a movie and buy a book and hang out with her friends. You got to see Cliff and Booth hang out and talk about life like guys do and get drunk together. And, uh, really just by chance, the last half hour of a movie fell into place. It's not like the movie was building towards anything. If there was no last thirty minutes of the movie, what else would there be to the movie? You know what I mean? It was just like
0: a day well, in the it was, life of the ending three is obviously people. integral to the story as as it should be. But I think that what you're saying, I would guess that a lot of people came out of the movie theater feeling the same way, uh and thinking mm-hmm. the same kind of things. But I think it's really a testament to just the the power of this of the storytelling because it just sweeps you along with it and keeps you in the moment and you know especially for somebody who's not accustomed to you know thinking analytically about a movie because you're gonna you know write a an article about it or, or whatever it is as uh, as sure. eric does all the time then you know you might you might just let yourself be immersed in a movie. And that's actually why I love to go see a movie twice because I try to, mm-hmm. the first time I see it, just try and, it does does not really work <laughs> very much, but I try to, the first time I see it, just turn off that part of my brain that's constantly like nitpicking at things and and picking things apart, even though I love to do that, and just try and go along for the ride the way that the filmmakers intended. And then the second time, I'll really buckle down and, like, take notes and, you know, think through everything really specifically. But uh, I just feel like this movie does such a great job of holding you in the moment and keeping you—it's like what what I think all of us were saying before about that uh, sequence where it's just going through as if we're watching the show that Dalton is acting in, right? Like, yeah. I, I think one of you said— uh, god for a minute i i had forgotten that he was an actor playing right, a part right. in that. a show in this movie right it's like i just so i think the movie does a really good uh, job of doing that yeah so i the thing that i really wanted to mention and i meant to say this right at the beginning but i love how the movie opens it sort of fades up and it, it zooms out from that like image that's right in front of where his car is parked and you find yourself zooming back through the car and you just have this Mm. sort of like static shot looking directly ahead as they get into the car and they pull out and the music comes on and they go for a drive and to me that just said all right welcome you know buckle your seat belts we're going for a ride and that is what the movie delivered you know and uh, i mean of course it's also a big la things it's a very uh it's big um, the the culture is very car oriented, right? People love yeah. their cars in LA, and uh, Eric can attest to this as well because he was out here for quite a while. But it's there's such a car culture here. I mean, I don't live in an especially ritzy like area or anything in LA, but I have seen just about every type of car known to man out here. Like right. like I'll be walking down the street and there's a freaking Lamborghini just like parked in front of you know the diner or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that part really spoke to me as well, and I just love how it just created this like magical, fairy tale sort of ambiance, especially in the scenes with Sharon Tate, uh, with Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate was right. just this ma- just the use of color. and just the way that Tarantino shoots things, I always find really uh, gratifying. What do you guys have to say about that, Jess and then Eric?
2: Speaking of the way Quentin Tarantino likes to shoot things, is this the part where we get into his uh, foot fetish, or is that saved for uh, a later episode? <laughs> you can you can talk about that, that boy's feet if got you some you want. issues yeah he's always always got feet showing up he's got he's got uh he's that guy i think that's a i think that's a hippie thing
0: i think that was just one of those details he had to include because it was so emblematic of the hippies now i don't know whether or not the man maybe he just likes hippie feet maybe
1: he does
2: you know who's to say he likes the patchouli he likes the no shoes no sandals yes service
1: Okay, well, <laughs> yes. the first shot of Death Proof is literally a girl's feet on a car dashboard. The dude likes feet.
0: That's true. He really,
1: yeah. really likes feet. Okay. okay.
0: <laughs> well, I, I can't deny it anymore. you you should. Man, I haven't watched. You know what? I'm gonna have to go back and watch Death Proof again. Uh, I haven't seen that yeah. in so long. It. You know what? This movie made me want to go back and like rewatch all of Tarantino's films. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It really. does yeah, So I Eric, love um, all of his stuff, and I can never. I'll never pass
2: up, you know, the chance to sit down and watch something.
0: You know what? When I first went to see Pulp Fiction, I was living in, like, I was living in Ohio, uh, you know, around the area where we grew up, Jess, and um, we went to go. It was, like, one of the second-run theaters where it didn't cost very much to get in and everything, because I was in high school at the time, I think, and uh, what was it, 95, 96 that it came out? Something like that? I think Um, it was 96. Well, anyway... So we went to go see it, and the reel broke halfway through the movie, oh. and I was so into it. And we were, me and my friends, were so pissed when we came out. They gave us like a ticket to come back later, but I was like, man, I really wanted to watch the whole movie then. And that was the first yeah, time it ruins I had gone your whole see day. It. And then on my way, so we decided to go to a restaurant after that, Perkins. And uh, on the way, like through the parking lot. I had this old Volkswagen Beetle and literally the floor fell out of my car under me while I was driving. And so it turned <laughs> into this big traumatic night that I will always remember and associate with Pulp Fiction. Yeah, um, That just came to mind. But Eric, I did want to get your thoughts on uh, what I was saying before about... Uh... What was I saying before?
1: Oh, cinem- yeah, the cin- the cinematography. Yeah, that yeah. opening shot is stunning. You know, I love... What I like about shots like that that, you know, are this kind of, like, long, unending sequence without cuts is it really kind of lets you take in the world. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, that that it opens on that image that also kind of recalls, you know, the, the real-life tragedy that occurred because that's an actual artifact that's there mm-hmm. in that driveway. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people associate it with that tragedy. So it kind of, like, uses that to bookend the film before kind of introducing you to these other characters. And the shot's yeah. gorgeous. It really lets you kind of enjoy and kind of take in the world and, you know, see, see the scenery and, you know, capture the mood of the, uh, the late 60s. You know, because it really does feel like the late 60s. It just kind of lets you soak it in. It's great.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Did anyone else uh, notice that in Rick Dalton's driveway where he parks his car in front of, what is that, an 8-foot by 10-foot painting or poster of himself in one of his movies did you well that's i think that's what we're talking about reminded Uh, me oh reminded me of uh the shining with jack nicholson just his face uh, in that
0: in that big poster there can you educate us on that poster eric do you have any tidbits on that one
1: i i think that was real like i'm not i'm not exactly sure but it looks like an actual piece of kind of like street art that yeah. i think might be real now i might be i might be wrong it might be something that's only in the movie but i'm pretty sure the reason the movie shows that so prominently is because that's actually in that driveway oh, yeah i, I think that the is time. the
0: case yeah um so that's that's kind of what we were talking about now if, I, now if i'm wrong we're gonna get
1: like a gajillion comments calling me stupid so uh, <laughs> uh sorry. yeah there's
0: only so well, much we time we welcome in the day a gajillion uh, comments Yes, we do, in fact. Yes, please comment. Uh, send, us, send us an email at mechadragonshow at gmail.com. So, <laughs> and if you
2: give us five-star rating on iTunes, uh, you can send us five comments.
0: Yeah, hey, why not? So I, I just want to start to wrap up with uh, our final thoughts on this movie. Any, any last thoughts, Jess, that you want to leave us with about this movie?
2: Basically, like we, we mentioned in our non-spoilery part, of this podcast, we were kind of trying to sell the movie to people if they hadn't seen it. Um basically I'm gonna do kind of the same thing. I'm gonna sell the movie to people who have seen it. Go watch this again. This is definitely a movie that needs to take, you know, two, four, seven sit-downs to really appreciate the whole thing and get everything out of it. Because you know there's little things in there that tarantino has let it seep into your behind.
0: pores yeah
2: yeah and and that's the thing it's like every couple i went to see it with my daughter she was so excited about seeing the movie and we walked out she was like i liked it and i'm disappointed hmm. but since then we've seen it again and she kind of did what i did it's like i wasn't really sure what i watched at first but now the more i've thought about it and looked into it the more it's, every time it just gets better and better and better. So it is a movie that does grow on you if you don't like it right off the bat. Like I said, with Tarantino, some of his stuff is uh, kind of an acquired taste to get into the, the proper mindset and emotional feel of everything. But yeah, this is a great movie. It does have some of the most rewarding scenes in it. Out of any uh, Tarantino's movies, and as far as their brutality, I know Eric hasn't seen uh, the Hateful Eight yet, but it ends on a pretty brutal note. And there's a couple brutal scenes through it, but I think this tops that in the last. Well, the it, last it act. the
0: the the brutality and violence is is at the end, but it's not the very end. I mean, I think that after all of that, it it ends on a very hopeful note where Rick walks right. up. The you know um, was who is it Sebring that comes down to the gate and talks to him, and then Sharon Tate yeah. comes on the intercom and invites him up, and then he, he walks up there, and uh, she's like,
2: "Is ev- is everyone okay?"
0: <laughs> and Rick's like,
2: "Yeah, uh, well, the fucking hippies aren't."
0: And of course, everyone <laughs> yeah, yeah, laughed. Great. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tarantino's just such a master of dialogue too. Okay, well, Eric, yeah. what are your uh, parting thoughts on this movie?
1: Well, I had a couple of things I wanted to bring up before my parting thoughts. Oh, please, please, um, Go another ahead. some really you know fun details I, I think are worth you know discussing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one is that you know I think um, I think Dalton's career in the film because even though his friendship with Booth is based a lot on Reynolds and his stuntman, I I and I mentioned this with you earlier, Will was, was that uh, I think his career is actually modeled very closely after a very young Clint Eastwood. Hmm. Um, To the point that even the movie that i think it was like the 14 fists of mccluskey or something like that the one where he like roasts all those nazis with a flamethrower i believe that's a direct reference (laughs) to a real to a real life eastwood film because it does follow the same path you know where dalton's on like this hit western that ends and then he has trouble getting getting things started you know after the show ends so he does some spaghetti westerns does some movies that he's not that proud of because in the movie it's clear that Dalton's not that proud of fourteen fists of McCluskey, but then his career kind of takes off when he gets involved with kind of a more artsy director. In Eastwood's case, it was Don Siegel. Mm-hmm. But um, if I could just interject real film...
0: quick, um, there is a okay. great interview with Leonardo DiCaprio and Quentin Tarantino that Vanity Fair did, which you could find on YouTube, and they really go in depth on Rick Dalton and what uh, the inspirations were for him and which actors from that era they they looked at and you know trying to develop the character and you know find out who he was for DiCaprio. so i i would just you know recommend that you take a look at that vanity fair has been doing some really interesting interviews and and like scene breakdowns and stuff when uh, these these new big movies come out so i just would uh encourage everybody to take a look at that one but please continue yeah anyway
1: for those who are interested i believe the 14 fists of mccluskey is a dialed up version of a clint eastwood movie called where eagles Dare, which Mm. was done in 1968 so it was around the time it would have been in the right time frame for Mm. this film as well and it stars clint eastwood and richard burton as two as an american ranger and an mi6 agent who get dropped behind enemy lines in germany to rescue an american general from a nazi castle Mm. it's very um the the last half of the movie yeah the last half of the movie is a lot of fun Cause it's literally just them killing Nazis for fifty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing. It's um, not quite as over the top as Fourteen Fifths of McCluskey, but it, it gets there because Eastwood and Burton just slaughter pretty much the entire German army. And what it, was the great. title of that one again? <laughs> it's called uh Where Eagles Dare. Okay. It's got some amazing pyrotechnics. So if you like a good explosions movie, I think this was the first Hollywood explosions movie because it's just I like explosions, explosions and I
0: like uh, heroes defeating Nazis uh, so I'll have to check that yeah, out <laughs> you
2: can't go wrong
0: with that and it's like I love <laughs> but, the
2: scene where it's like the flashback where he's uh, torching Nazis they're on the, Nazis. the set of that film and they're they're practicing they're practicing with the flamethrower and oh. DiCaprio fires it. and he's like whoa that's a little that's a little hot can we uh, can we turn that down a bit turn the heat down a bit and they're like it's a flamethrower. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like, it's gonna be hot. And yeah. that's basically the souvenir he gets to keep from that set, I suppose. Because we didn't mention it earlier with the uh, attack at the end of the movie. Uh, but uh, after Cliff Burton roundly trounces the three Manson family inside the house. And Brandy helps. The one girl, Sadie, I think her name is runs through a plate glass window into the pool and just falls in the pool. She's got her handgun with her and she is she turns into the most annoying person because once she gets How hit with that she can <laughs> in her face she was just Ah, 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 ah. I mean she wasn't actually <laughs> exhaling, all of her breathing out was just screaming for like yeah. four minutes. And she's in the pool and she falls underwater and if they had a camera underwater
0: here yeah. boom.
2: But she comes up and, and Rick's just sitting there floating around on his floaty listening to music, minding his own damn business, and this chick comes flying through the glass and falls in the pool and there's blood everywhere and he freaks out and just runs into his uh, his shed there. And one of the great scenes for the audience is when they show him walking. I think they show him like foot first and then the camera pans up and he's carrying that flamethrower. He's got the backpack on and everything. He just torches her in the pool and, you know, everyone's cheering. Such a great scene. And that was uh, pretty sweet.
1: But by the time you get to that point, it has definitely become a fairy tale because the moment <laughs> is just so preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's wonderful, and I and I also think that kind of is a better kind of statement on the, on the friendship between him and Booth because, the reason that scene really works is because Booth does all of the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. and Dalton right. comes out for the money shot, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the way it really. And that's their That's <laughs> <way> the <they're, that's laughs> way their whole relationship.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah that's, and that's uh, and point. again, you know. For my parting thoughts, Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, best to, you know, discuss, you know, how that final shot, you know, really hit me in the heart. Please. When you see Sharon Tate at the end, she's wearing a jersey and she was actually found dead in that jersey after the murders. And to see her alive in that jersey, it really kind of made me tear up. Yeah. And it made me feel, it made me feel very hopeful. And uh, real quick, you know, another really kind of nice little stylistic nod is, The opening title of the movie is actually right at the end, Mm -hmm. during that wide panning shot, and that was Quentin Tarantino's tribute to a movie called Once Upon a Time in the West by Sergio Leone, the director of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which ended the same way. You don't see, you don't see the opening shot, you don't see the opening title until the very end, and you know Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, which naturally has a similar title, Mm -hmm. ends the same way. But what I liked about that ending was you felt like every character in the movie got a second chance and it was about them not giving up and, you know, greeting the new day and seeing what it might bring. And God, I, as someone who was out in Los Angeles for three and a half years, which is where I met. Will, you know, I got very depressed, very jaded, very stressed, was not a pleasant person to be around. Cause I really thought my dreams were going down the tubes and I was so afraid to go back to Ohio and try something new. But since I've moved back to Ohio, I've been much more productive. I've been much more happy. And my career has actually been moving forward. And it's amazing. Yeah, it felt great. like it, it just felt like it really hit those feelings with me again. You know, it was like coming home. Watching that ending was mm-hmm. like coming home. Yeah, that's the best awesome. way I can put it. It just I think made me feel wonderful. I got
0: that same sense of, you know, second chances at, at mm. the end of the movie, and that that hit me really hard, too, you know, because everybody makes mistakes in their lives, and, you know, I tend to be a person who can, who can dwell on bad things that have happened in the past and let them still stress me out, but everything about this movie, you know, during the whole, like, first, like, two-thirds of the movie, I'm thinking to myself, with the exception of, like, a couple things when, you know, he's at the ranch and, and stuff like that, where it's like, man, this is such a... Uh, happy movie for Tarantino. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and of course there's the the main amount of violence comes there at the end, but I think that I'm really glad that he took this approach with it. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it was just, it, it can be easy to prejudge a filmmaker's work based on what they've done in the past. And of course you have all these expectations, but I think that in some way, Tarantino kind of used these expectations that people might have about his work to emotionally charge the film as, like, again, if you know anything about the history of what actually happened, and sort of let that build as he's showing you, you know, how uh, Sharon Tate is living her life and all this stuff. And then at the end, instead of it becoming this horrible, you know, tragedy, it becomes this triumphant, you know, affirmation of... The, you know, the, all the themes of the film that we've been talking about. And and so that th- this is why I say, one of the reasons why I say the more I think about this film, the more I really love it. And uh, it's just right. pure cinematic magic to me. Those are my yeah. parting thoughts. Yeah, and like, like we mentioned, uh,
2: touching on the second chance people get, I really think Tarantino in his portrayal of Sharon Tate in this movie, it was almost like a celebration of the life she deserved to have, you know? Mm. I think he wanted to give her that because if she's really as vibrant, as gentle as, you know, everyone says, then what happened to her, I mean, what happened to her anyway is a terrible thing. But I think he just wanted to kind of represent her in that way that she was just, just a sweetheart and she deserved life beyond that. And I think it's kind of a celebration of her for who she was. Um,
0: as a I think person. so. I know Tarantino really loves uh, Sharon Tate and, you know, watching her in, in the films she was in and everything. Mm-hmm. He said that in interviews. Well, this has been a really great discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, guys. Thank you, Eric, for coming back to the podcast. I hope that uh, we can have you back again soon for something else. Uh, we got a lot of stuff planned. Oh, absolutely. For Quentin Tarantino's
1: Star Trek.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. We could mention that really quick. You know, at first, when I heard that Tarantino was interested in doing the next Star Trek movie and that he was working on a script, I was, I, my initial impression was, you know what, I bet if, you know, this actually goes forward, he would make a really interesting movie, but I don't mm-hmm. know how Star Trek it will actually be. But, right. you know, after seeing this movie and being reminded of his chops as a filmmaker, and how versatile he really is. I have to wonder. Now, I don't know anything about whether Tarantino's been like a lifelong like super fan of Star Trek or, you know, whatever it is. I have to assume that he does like Star Trek if he's interested in doing this project. But I would actually really want to go see a Tarantino Star Trek film because he might just infuse it with the new life that it needs, assuming that he can get the spirit of the thing right.
2: Yeah, and would that be okay if that's his final film? Because all you're going to want to do
0: is see more, you know, Star Trek if Tarantino. Ta- I'll make you a bet right now that if Tarantino does his 10th film as a Star Trek movie, that that is not going to be his last film. I mean, I could be wrong, but uh plus I think it would just be a damn shame uh if we didn't get any more, any more movies from Tarantino. I mean, even if... You know, let's say yeah, Once Upon terrible. a Time in a Hollywood is a solid 10, like Eric was saying. And I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree now. You know, even if the next movie he puts out is like an 8.5 or a 9, I, it would still be worth it for me to have those movies exist.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, true. But it's like <laughs> if, if he does quit after his 10th movie, that's kind of like Shakespeare halfway through saying, you know what? I just want to dance. And he goes <laughs> off and becomes a dancer. You know, it's like, uh...
0: We'll look i mean so, it's his and, prerogative, and who knows so. it's like yeah
2: that's true but uh it's his art it's his choice but it could be with seth mcfarlane and he did that show the orville have you watched that at all
0: oh yeah oh yeah
2: yeah and at first it's like okay this is gonna be ridiculous and it was ridiculous but it was also not bad at all it's actually a pretty decent show
0: Well, I love that show. It is definitely a conversation for another episode, so maybe we can pencil that one in. But I Mm -hmm. I would love to hear Eric's thoughts really quick on a potential uh, Tarantino Star Trek movie.
1: Well, I think if Tarantino were to do a Star Trek movie, he would probably try and capture the spirit of the original show from the 60s. Mm. Which, you know, honestly, honestly, I don't think any— well, I mean, not just that, but the actual kind of feel and look of the show, because I don't think Star Trek has ever looked like that, you know, since, you know, since the the original. first season of yeah. uh, of Next Gen, you know, since the first season of Next Gen. And then, and then after that, it kind of like adapted a kind of new look and feel and that original feel was lost, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because Star Trek is still great. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe but that's what he that... was
2: practicing on in this movie with all the scenes where they Cut uh, Leonardo DiCaprio into the old movies. Maybe he was just practicing <laughs> for exactly that for the Star Trek. Maybe we are going to get a nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies feel. That Star would be Trek
0: interesting, though. All right, so, Eric, are you just talking more about like the like the production design uh, and and just sort of those like oh, bold the production colors design.
1: Yeah, the production design, the style, the cinematography. I think I think if Tarantino were to do a Star Trek movie, that's what he would do. That'd be amazing. But I'm also going to say this. To, yeah. to people that are apprehensive about the idea of Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie, I'm going to point out to one of my favorite episodes of Next Gen. Okay. There's, a, there's an episode where Worf you know, finds out that there's a multiverse, and he keeps jumping back and forth between these different versions of reality, mm-hmm. where there's all these different iterations of the universe. And I'm like just picture this as the tarantino iteration of the trekverse this is Ooh, like the tarantino run multiverse so if you have apprehension about it because there's a multiverse where the borg win there's a universe where picard dies and Riker becomes the captain of the enterprise this is tarantino's version of the universe right just let it be that oh, okay <laughs> and i view see that as you know what that, yeah, he's that is
2: basically in a different uh on a different planet in his own multiverse, you know, he's creating the Quentin Tarantino multiverse. That's why he's taken certain liberties with uh, historical incidents, like with the Hitler and Inglorious Bastards and the Sharon That's Tate. That's real interesting. In well, you know, movie. they
0: established the idea of a multiverse in that first uh, Abrams reboot movie, so I could see them do him doing right. something like that. Huh? Cool. All right. Well. Um, I think it's time to wrap up. Thank you both for being on this episode of Mecha Dragon. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Um, If you have a moment, please go to the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating and or review. That really helps out the show, guys. If you have a spare minute and you like the podcast, it would be much appreciated. And if you leave a review, we'll read our favorite ones uh, on the air. That's going to be it for today. Thanks for tuning into this episode on once upon a time in hollywood and uh this is captain will signing out
2: all right uh like uh will said check us out on apple store give us five stars and before i do the rest of our plugs eric why don't you tell everyone where they can find you at
1: all right. Well, anybody who's interested in uh, submitting your scripts to be evaluated, I am a script reader for International Screenwriters Association. We are always looking for new material. And who knows, I may be the guy that reviews your stuff. And if you want to see more of my written reviews, along with several other of my esteemed colleagues, please visit us at ScreenHub Entertainment. That is screenhub.org to see our current pop culture and you know classic cinema reviews. And we will always be available there. That's excellent. For
2: our turn, uh, you can find us at mechadragon.net. And you can catch our podcast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox. Everywhere else you can find your podcasts. Please go to anchor.com. You can also become a supporter there. Or anchor.fm. You can support us there. We'd love to hear from you and have you join us. You can give us thumbs up five-star rating reviews on any platform you hear us on we're also on facebook as mecha dragon and on twitter and instagram as mecha dragon show shoot us an email at mecha at gmail.com with any questions comments corrections, or topics and uh tell us what you thought about once upon a time in hollywood see you in the next episode of mecha dragon peace
0: out take care folks and looking forward to seeing you again all right take care Bye-bye. Our music is Overworld by Kevin MacLeod from incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 3.0.